Well, we're on Isaiah chapter 60 today, and I'm picking back up from Connor, who taught through 56, 57, 58, 59. It was great. Um, Connor mentioned, and, and, I, and he's right, that I, our, our ways of teaching are, are, are different, but, you know, they are what they are. And uh, Connor has done a lot with Old Testament and ancient symbolism and bringing those things back up. Of course, you've got to do historical study to that. But he mentioned that I, my approach seems to be more historical and bring out a lot of, you know, and I, I think that's right. And particularly today, I think I've got some historical stuff. So I hope it'll be interesting for you. <clears throat> uh, so I'm going to continue with uh, Connor's outline here on Part D, which is eschatological hope chapters 60 through 62 and if uh, if we keep that in mind I think it may become a little bit easier to read this chapter uh, we're talking about eschatology here I mean which is the end of the age right or the millennial kingdom with Christ or however you want to think about it the end of history uh, but I would like to start back in chapter 59 verses 20 and 21 just to kind of get a running start here so uh, chapter 59 of Isaiah verses 20 and 21 and a redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord and as for me this is my covenant with them says the Lord my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So, to begin chapter 60 then, God is going to send a Redeemer to Zion. And as we're going to see, this is a, a new thing. It's a, it's a new covenant, as it were. And when He makes that new covenant, His words are not going to depart from the mouth of His people or from His from their children or from their children's children. Wow. Okay, now, my great-grandfather was a Baptist preacher. My grandfather was a Baptist preacher. My mother, although not a Baptist preacher, <laughs> preached to us at home, I must say, my brother and I are both Christians. Wow. My two daughters, as far as we're able to discern, are Christians. So, wow. I two mean, of our grandchildren. Two of our grandchildren seem to be Christians. So, I mean, we're talking about five or six generations here. This is like, I mean, what can I say? I mean, what a blessing, you know? I mean, every family's not like that. I mean, what a blame. So anyway, this persistence of the Word of God, you know, down through generation, then generation and generation and generation. I mean, it's, it's great, I mean, you know, to think about that. So anyway, I'm just going to start with that. Uh, okay, so the context here in chapter 60 is uh, coming out of Babylonian captivity and the return from that captivity. So this is mixed up in it. But there's also kind of an eschatological sense that, you know, we're talking about the end of history here also. It gets, it gets 
blended together some. I mean, it, it, sometimes it's hard to separate it out. And uh, so anyway, that, that's where we are. Um, so the context is Isaiah's prophesying out toward the future is the coming back from Babylonian captivity. Um, and when he, when these Jews come back from captivity, in verse 21 of chapter 59, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with them and I'll put my spirit upon them. I can't think of but anything here that is really referring to the new covenants, really what's happening here. So, <clears throat> let's think about the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. We've read it many times, no doubt. Jeremiah's the next book over, chapter 31. Verse 31, yeah. I mean, how great this is, you know. I mean, right in the middle of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So, the covenant, the Ten Commandment covenant and the National Covenant and all that through Moses, right? That's when they came out of Egypt. But this one's going to be different. This is a new covenant that he's going to make with the house of Israel. My covenant, which they broke, the first covenant. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Although I do have the Ten Commandments memorized, I mean, at last, after many years of struggling. But it doesn't matter. I don't have to. And we'll, and we'll explain it in a minute. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbors or his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. <laughs> I mean... Don't get any better than that. So for all of us who have had our iniquities uh, forgiven, huh? we don't have to go around beating each other over the head saying, know the Lord, know the Lord. We know the Lord. I mean, so, I mean, or I don't have to tell you, uh, boy, I wish you could know the Lord the way I know the Lord. I mean, well, forget it. I mean, you know, I mean, we have our own relationship with the Lord. What am I? You know the Lord. I know the Lord. So we don't have to beat each other over the head about this. I mean, we know the Lord, right? So that's it. Okay. Back to Isaiah chapter 60. So this is... Uh, and, and indeed, in Jeremiah, let me fit, continue a little bit. He says that part of this new covenant is that God will write His law on our hearts so that His Word doesn't depart from our mouth. Uh, so it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that brings these things into our remembrance. And now it seems to me that the law is summarized in only two commandments. And it goes back to Hero Israel. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And then Jesus says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So all the Ten Commandments are based on these two commandments. 
and all the prophetic work in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the big guns, right? They're all based on these two commandments, these two only. So if you've forgotten the ten, it's okay. You only have to remember the two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and your soul, your neighbor as yourself. And if you've forgotten those, it's okay. Just do what's right. You know what's right. I mean, we don't have to have a seminar on what's right. You know, we know what's right. So do it. That's it. So, really, the Lord is making it a lot easier on us. <laughs> Although, Jim, it may be hard enough to obey. <laughs> okay, is everybody with me so far? Is this, is this making sense? Okay. All right. Uh, okay, let's go to chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. So, uh, yes, uh, no doubt, the light's going to arise on Israel when they're back in the land. Yes, no doubt. But again, this also has an eschatological sense to it, that the light of God is also going to arise on the Gentiles. And truly, the light does shine out of Jerusalem, which Isaiah is going to say, and to, it's to this light that the Gentiles will come. Yes, this is going to happen. Uh, all right, <clears throat> let's see here. So, <clears throat> the light <clears throat> is arising and shining on Israel. Now, uh, this is a, an excursus here. Um, uh, let's see here. Yes. I am trying uh, to have a balance here in my own understanding, which I could be wrong, I'm for sure. I'm trying to have a balance in thinking about Israel and thinking about the Jews. Um, so, as Isaiah is prophesying, I mean, he's prophesying to Israel, I mean, as they come back into the land. But it seems to me that he's also, in a sense, prophesying to the Israel of God. As Paul mentions in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God then would just be the Israel of God, the whole church, everyone who believes in the Redeemer. But I'm trying to have a balance here in thinking about Israel and thinking about modern-day Jews. I don't say I have the right balance. I'm trying to have a right balance. So let's think about then who it is that makes up the true Jews. And we find that in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. 28. Paul says... <clears throat> For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the true Jew, it, it, Paul puts it in that language, is one who's had circumcision of the heart, 
In other words, one who's believed in Christ and has the Holy Spirit, that these are the true Jews. This is what the Bible says. Uh, we might say all kind of other different stuff, and I think no doubt we do. So, has God cast aside his ancient people, the Jews? I'm, again, I'm trying to have a balance. I think not. Let's look at Romans 11 then. And Paul continues his discussion. Uh, Romans 11. Well, let's just read verse 1. Start in verse 1 then. I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's talking about the Jews. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, descended from Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. I love that scene. Elijah's complaining to God. I'm the only believer left, Lord. I mean, I'm the only one. And God says, well, wait a minute. <laughs> there are others. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time today, there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. And so on and so forth and so on about Israel and the Gentiles. <clears throat> so I think Paul's point is, among the Israelite-type Jews... There is a remnant of believers among the Jews. So, yes, I mean, evidently and obviously, there are Jews that are within that Israel of God as well as Gentiles. And in the nation of Israel today, over in the Middle East, indeed, there are Jews who form Messianic congregations over there, and they're worshiping Christ, you know. So they're there, I mean. So I'm trying to have a balance of understanding here about this. <clears throat> All right, is, that, is this sensible enough or am I off base here? All right, let's go. What you're saying. Huh? What? what you're saying with the Bible says you're going off base. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's always a good, uh, a good rule. All right. So, chapter 60 then, back in Isaiah. Uh, and indeed, he's prophesying toward Israel, but I think the Gentiles, as we see, are going to be included. Uh, let's read it again. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your coming. The brightness of your rising. Uh, okay. The kings of the earth, evidently the Gentile kings, are going to come to this light. The light shines out of Jerusalem. I mean, obviously we're talking about the passion of Christ here. His death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And so the Gentiles are attracted to this light here and they're going to come in uh, verses 4 and 5 lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together they come to you your son shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exalt 
because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of nations shall come to you. Well, uh, so Gentiles, yes, are going to come into this light. If we want to think a little more literally here, the Jews have been migrating into Israel, yes, uh, at least since 1870, and we can go back and read all that history in the Jewish, I mean the British Mandate and all that, and Palestine and so forth. But indeed, uh, Jews have been immigrating, migrating into the land of Israel, yes, in big numbers since 1880, and they're still migrating in, yes. This is all true. This is all true. Uh, so, uh, four and five is happening. It has happened. So that, it seems to me, the nation of Israel continues to act as a prophetic message or a prophetic sign to us. It's a prophecy that, you know, multitudes are coming into the kingdom of God. Although these Jews are not necessarily saved, but some of them are, but not all of them. Okay. Uh, all right. <clears throat> uh, verses like, six. Yes. It seems like you could apply this also to the Jew. You know that one Jew, Christ. You know all of the wealth of the, of the Gentile nations that have come to him, and then you even get mentions of Sheba here. Are you gonna... I am going to talk okay. about it, but jump in when I start talking about it. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, verses 6 and 7, here they are. They begin to come in, all these Gentile kings. Let's, let's read it here and then we'll talk about it. A multitude of camels shall cover you. <clears throat> uh, I saw a video the other day about this Arabian prince whose his, his vocation is raising camels. And I mean... He had vast herds of these things. It's not just like one or two camels wandering around. I mean, there were giant numbers of these things. And he had a white herd. They were all white. He had a brown herd. They were all brown. And he had a dark brown herd. They were all dark brown. It was huge, man. It was a multitude. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> a multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels from Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nabayoth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. So all these Gentiles are going to come in. Let's talk about these Gentiles for a minute here. The first is the young camels of Midian and Ephah. Midian is the tribe of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, as you recall. He, Jethro, Moses was wandering around out there in the area of Midian. This tribe is descended from Midian, who is a son of Abraham by Keturah. Okay, you already know the answer, but here's my trick question that I always give. Now, some of you know the answer, but let's just see if everybody knows. How many sons did Abraham have? Many. Huh? Many. Many. But in terms of, uh, let's just say, immediate physical descent. Greg knows. David knows. I don't know. <laughs> David doesn't know. 
I think Nick knows. Maybe Nick does know. Huh? Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, but I mean physical descent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. He had eight sons. Abraham had eight sons. Okay, so Ishmael, right? Isaac. And then after Sarah died, he had another wife named Keturah by whom he had six more sons. And all these sons also formed Middle Eastern tribes. Basically, we get, from Ishmael, we get 12. From, uh, from Keturah, we get six. So that's 18 tribes there. From the original forebear, some centuries earlier, named Joktan, we get 13. So that's 13, 25, and 6 is 30. That's 31 Arabian tribes. That's a lot of tribes. I don't know if they all formed tribes, but a lot of them did. Okay, we, we see them coming through in the Bible here. Okay, so Midian is a son of Abraham, yes, by Keturah. Ephah, this guy here then, is a son of Midian. So he would be a grandson to Abraham. All right. Uh, and Sheba then was another grandson of Abraham through Keturah. Um, Keturah had another son named Jokshan who had a son named Sheba. Sheba settled in the area of the Yemen down there in the, by the Red Sea and, and the southern tip there of Arabia. It is, uh, Yemen may be in the news these days. Why? <laughs> For shooting missiles at the shipping that's going through the Red Sea. Yes. Uh, so that's Yemen. Anyway, that was founded by Sheba. The area of Yemen was and is involved in the frankincense trade. It all, a lot of it comes up there through Yemen. Uh, and from Sheba also came a famous queen. Ah, yes, okay. All right, now in verse 7, the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you and Nebaioth. These are sons of Ishmael. Nebaioth is the patriarch of the Nabataeans who lived south and maybe east of Israel. And I think they're the ones who, who had that city of Petra, I think so. The Nabataeans. You know, this city that's carved out of these mountains. It's just all mountain, I mean. It's just carved into the stone. So they had that city. Well, so really discovered in this century by yeah. Europeans. Yeah, yeah. So these are, I mean, these are, well, big tribes, famous, famous Middle Eastern tribes. Uh, I'm just giving you some background here. They're all going to come in. They're coming in to the light from Jerusalem. That's the idea. All right. Are we talking about... The Arabian lands or Persia? Is that not Persia? Not not per well. I mean, it was conquered some by Persia, but not uh, not Persia per se. Okay. Uh, more like more like Saudi Arabia, uh, Yemen, Oman. Okay. That huge, big desert area out there. Okay. A lot. Okay. Well, I don't know this to be the case, but it may be that the Medes later on occupy the same area mm -hmm. of land, which is significant because that's the Magi. So when it's talking about the kings coming and bringing their golden frankincense, yeah. 
Right. Yeah. That's, yes. That's the magic. I, I, you're right. I think they did come down and conquer some of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, you're, okay. But these were like the, more of the original guys right. there. Right. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> okay. All right. Let's go to verse 8. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar. There's uh, silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because He has made you beautiful. Uh, all right, more historical work. I, I, I did a lot of this research. I love this stuff. I mean, you, you, know, you may not love it, but I, I'm going to give you what I have. <laughs> You're going to get it anyway. That's right. <laughs> the ships of Tarshish are mentioned several times in the Old Testament, right? Not only here, but in other places. So we need to, I mean, we don't have to. We could pass over it, but I want to think about where is Tarshish. Uh, it seems that it comes from an area called Tartessos, which was in southern Spain around Gibraltar and then over into Portugal too. So they, I've actually seen a map, that call, a modern map, that calls that area Tarshish. <laughs> so when we talk about the ships of Tarshish, we're talking about shipping that comes from southern Spain. These ships, the Phoenicians were the great shipbuilders of the, of the ancient world. Uh, and they're up in Tyre and Sidon and all up in there. So these Phoenicians then colonized these places like Carthage, for instance, was colonized by the Phoenicians. Evidently, southern Spain was colonized too. And that's this Tarshish area. It seems to me this is what it is. I mean, the ships of Tarshish. Uh, so, it's close to the Rock of Gibraltar. Gibraltar is still run by the British. And you run up about 300 feet and cross a line and you're in a town called La Linea, which means the line, and you're in Spain. <laughs> so it's, it's the line between Great Britain and Spain, yes. Okay, uh, so that's Tarshish. That's where it is. Uh, it's all really so interesting. I mean, Katie and I have been there. I mean, we've been up on top of Gibraltar, and if it's a clear day, you can look across the Mediterranean, and you can see Africa. That is how close they are, how close it is. Uh, okay. So, the young, the ships of Tarshish then, also in Spain, I, I'm giving you this just because I'm interested in it. Also in Spain lived a, lived a large group, a large population of Jews known as the Sephardim or the Sephardic Jews. This word is mentioned only once in the Bible in the book of Obadiah, verse 20. So let's look at Obadiah, verse 20. Yeah. It's in there somewhere. If somebody finds it, just read it, Obadiah, verse 20. Please, Greg. Yes. Okay, go ahead, Greg. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as the Zarephath, captives of Jerusalem, who are in a ship, Shepharad, 
shall possess the cities of the south. Okay. That's the word right there. Sephirot. You, you may be bored out of your skull, but I love this stuff. Sephirot <laughs> is the word I'm talking about here, and it occurs only one time in the Bible, and it's right there in Obadiah. Obadiah. Verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, the scholars really don't know where this was. I mean, they have some guesses. Some of them guess Turkey. Some of them guess, I don't know, Assyria, some other places. However, the Jews that lived in Spain began to call that area the Sephirod. Whether that's what it means or not, that's what they began to call it. All right, And so those Jews that were living in Spain and Portugal came to be called the Sephardic Jews after that word in the Bible. That occurs one time. After that word, the Jews and the Muslims were kicked out of Spain in 1492. It was a banner year for Spain. I mean, they discovered the New World. They kicked the Jews out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so these these Sephardic Jews then, and there were hundreds of thousands of them that were expelled from Spain. They go in North Africa. They go other places. They go to Latin America a lot. They go to New York City a lot. And, I mean, the population is, I mean, it's just kind of unknowable now, but I mean, it's, it's huge. I mean, the, you know, the reproduction and all that. So, basically, they're all over the world. The interesting thing about it is they continue to do their Hebrew liturgy in Spanish, even if they don't speak Spanish. I mean, the liturgy is in Spanish. Hebrew. Spanish, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, that's the Sephardic Jews. They come from this one place in, in Obadiah that nobody really knows what it is. But anyway, that's that's their name. So all of it. I was just speaking prophetically. Did he actually know where they were? I don't know. I, I think he must have been speaking prophetically, uh, unless maybe he knew where it was, but nobody else knows where it was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So that's verses eight and nine. Anyway, all these folks are going to be coming back. They're going to be attracted by the light. So again, you see, and, and this is what I'm saying, Israel seems to me to be a prophetic sign. The Sephardic Jews are coming back to Israel. Yeah. Uh, the guy, my mentor in the Bible, Dr. Hamada, he called these Arab Jews that came back to Israel because they look like Arabs, they live like Arabs, they eat Arabian food, and they speak Arabic, but they're Jews. These are all Sephardic Jews. So they're coming back to Israel from North Africa, yes. Uh, symbolically, the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be attracted to this light that comes out of Jerusalem. That's Christ. I mean, it's the light of Christ, right? So that's where we are. Uh, okay. Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Is that it? No, wrong. No, wrong. That's the wrong verse. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It went together almost. Verse 10. 
wait, wait, wait. Where am I? Chapter 60. 60. I'm reading the wrong passage. Okay, verse, uh, wait a minute. I don't want that. I want, I want verse 8 of chapter 60. Sorry. Uh, okay. No, wait. 8? Yeah. 8 and 9. Did we read those? Yes. So I'm 10. Okay, sorry. All right, sorry. Yes. A foreigner shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Now I must say, that the only way I can understand this here is, is toward the end of the age. I mean, this is not, is this happening in Israel? No. I mean, are the kings of the earth bringing the wealth of the earth into Israel? No. I mean, so it's talking in the future. It, it sounds a lot like, to me, uh, Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. So let's look at that. Revelation 21. Uh, beginning at verse 22. Yes. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. There it is. And its gates will never be shut. There it is. So Isaiah says its gates will never be shut. Yeah, but John picks it up here, see, in Revelation. So really, it is an eschatological uh, movement here uh, from Isaiah all the way to John in Revelation. Its gates will never be shut. Its gates will never be shut. All right. Uh, okay. Let's go to... Verse 12 of Isaiah 60. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress and the elm, my version says plain. I have no idea what that means. Well, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Uh... The sense here is the same, I think, as in Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. So let's like a brief, take a brief look. It's Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. Yes. Which says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly, rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. The glory of Lebanon shall somehow be given into Israel. The glory of Lebanon uh, seems to be its natural beauty and its amazing trees, the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, a prototype of this had already happened with Solomon's building of the first temple. In that Hiram, the king of Tyre, up there in Lebanon, cut down these cedar trees and made logs out of them and put them into rafts 
and put them in the Mediterranean Sea and floated these things down to Israel for Solomon to use in building the temple. So, the glory, in a sense, the glory of Lebanon had already come to Israel. And it, again, it's prophetic. It's just, you know, the glory, the glory of the kingdom of God. So I'm just rattling away here. Can anybody help me out? Or does anybody have something to say? Well, to go backwards. Yeah. Uh, again, to Sheba. Okay. Solomon was, had come to dawn a long time yeah. before Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, and most of Isaiah's uh, prophecies are about what's going to happen to his kingdom. It turns out in 100 years. Okay. Uh, with Babylonian captivity. Okay, yes. That's the end of Solomon's kingdom. Well, yes. At that point. Um, but, you know, Jesus brings this very thing up, you know, that gifts uh, were brought from Sheba to Solomon, and one greater than Solomon is here. There you go. Very good. So, there you go. Very good. Yes. What do you think it means when it says that the kings will bring their wealth into Israel? In, in the last days. Well, you know, uh, uh, there's a couple of ways we could... Say, how political you want to get? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, how, how, are we, how should we read that? Well, I'll tell you how I read it, mm-hmm. but I don't say that, uh, that I'm right. right. <laughs> I read it spiritually and symbolically that the wealth of the whole earth is going in to worship Christ. I mean, when Christ comes back. In terms of looking for this like today or within the next 50 years, I, hey, I don't have to look for it in the next 50 years. I'll be gone, okay? So I'll be enjoying what I'm talking about now. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's symbolic of the kingdom of Christ, but I could be wrong. One thing, you know, we always say that the wealth of the nation is its young people or its children. You know, it's, just, it's, it's people. You know, so it's so in a sense... Maybe it's talking about people, people coming to the Lord from all nations. You know, just sending yeah. you know, the, the true wealth of the nation is His people. Well, the foundational book of my discipline by Adam Smith was called The Wealth of Nations. And he wasn't talking about people. Of the Israel of God, yes, and you know all all the people people have been stolen by the church from every nation on earth. That's true. With, with their wealth, they right. have brought into the church. Well, this is also true. Um, you know, and the treasures of the heart, the treasures of the word, have been you know set upon set upon the Israel of God. Yeah. Could be all those things. And I, you know, I think this is what makes a horse race in terms of biblical interpretation. You know, I mean. So, but anyway, let's go on. Um, let's see here. We're in verse. Must be in verse fourteen. Yeah. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Well, the Zion of, of the Holy One of Israel is also a tip-off here. We're talking about Christ. 
Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Well, again, I mean, however you want to look at it here, uh, as the old hymn used to say, we're marching to Zion, you know, uh, beautiful Zion. Uh, and eventually, I think, it will be obvious that the road to Zion is the road we need to be on. Uh, any other road is the devil's highway. And sometimes it's very smooth. But don't be deceived. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> yeah. Let's go to... Uh, yeah. uh, and verse 16, it isn't... Yes. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, or Messiah it would be, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Oh, I praise the Lord. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. It seems here in verse 18, this is clearly talking about the end of the age where violence and war shall cease because otherwise the Bible wouldn't be true in other parts of the Bible. Where, for instance, Jesus says, to the end, wars are determined. Wars and destruction are determined until the end of the age. But we get to a situation where there are no more wars. So that's the end of the age. That's the end of the age. Verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended uh, same kind of anticipation here uh, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Maybe we could just look at that. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Uh, yeah. Uh, somebody have that. Want to read it? Then the angel showed me the river the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river a tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any or anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow. John is at least conflating, if that's the right word, prophecies from Ezekiel and Isaiah here. Ezekiel, the trees growing by the river, you know, the waters coming out of the throne, and it's for the healing of the nations and all that. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And Isaiah, that there'll be no more, we don't need any more light there because God will be our everlasting light. And indeed, they will need no lamp or 
or son for the Lord will be their light. John's picking these up, right? So, so that's what it is. I mean, it's end time prophecy here, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Uh, okay. Well, I have some other uh, nifty uh, detailed uh, scriptural things, but I think maybe I won't do that today. Maybe we'll do it next time. I'll just finish reading. Your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one should become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. So, until here, the reading of Isaiah. So, thanks for your attention. We'll stop here. Yes. Anything I should clarify something? Yes. Uh, if anyone's unfamiliar with the term Israel God, that comes from Galatians 6. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your